0: Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast Part 1 episodes are designed to be self-contained, fully satisfying experiences in themselves. But for hardcore philosophy fans, we record for another hour or so to release behind our various paywalls to folks that pitch in to help us make this show. What you're about to hear is a preview of one of these Part 2 episodes. We hope you enjoy it. Hey, this is the Partially Examined Life Episode 288 Part 2. We've been concluding our treatment of Roger Scruton's book Beauty so as we were just talking before starting here Dylan you wanted to start us off that you had asked a question in part 1 that i just blew you off so ask it again and we'll treat it more seriously this time
1: so <laughs> <laughs> so
2: the question the question was the tension between the access to beauty that is requires a contemplative act that in fact requires a lot of work and that we have to cultivate and energize towards and in fact we may even be sort of untouched by it unless we really work to engage with it and then have that experience of that aesthetic experience of beauty that to me seems intention with an obvious aspect of or obvious experience of the beautiful or can be and as Scruton refers to it and to me is part of my experience for art that i don't understand but i find that it touches me and affects me in ways that I don't completely get that I can reflect on. It's just the immediate experience of being attracted to it and being drawn to it. So I, there's at least that tension there. So that the notion, you know, I'm left with, well, for something that doesn't have any aspect of wanting us to walk towards it, why would we call it beautiful? That'd be one thing, right? You know, maybe we say, well, because somebody else tells me that you can develop a taste for it, it's worth your while. And that may be. But it doesn't seem to me to get, that can't be the only aspect of the beautiful that people have to educate us towards it. Because there's something about the beautiful that just draws us in. It's the thing that pulls us toward it.
0: Just to contextualize this, yeah, our whole first discussion was based around these platitudes, number one of which is beauty pleases us, number three of which is beauty is always a reason for attending to the thing that possesses it. His own theory should not violate these platitudes without some serious argument.
2: Yes, and if I had been more thoughtful in my question, I would have said, the end seems to disagree with the beginning in which the beautiful is actually something we want to attend to. Whereas
1: if we have to work too hard to attend to it, how is it beautiful? Let me try one analogy and one different way of approaching that question, Dylan. So the first is, consider the experience of like, you come across a black widow spider, but you don't really know what it is. You don't understand the significance. And you're like, oh, look at that little spider. And somebody who does comes over and grabs you and says, Jesus Christ, get away from that thing. Like, oh my God. you know That's two different subjective experiences informed by some kind of understanding or knowledge of the situation. And there's plenty of examples that we have where you may be like, oh, blah, 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 blah. And then somebody else is like, oh my God, I can't believe you did that or didn't because you just didn't. Okay. So there's that. Beauty drawing you in Versus instead of thinking about, about working so hard, for think of it in terms of cultural situatedness. So he talks about in passing in a couple of sections about Eastern art or sutras or something like, I don't remember exactly what he referenced. But he says basically like you have to be steeped in the tradition or at least raised in the culture where you understand the symbology and the significance of various things for, in order to participate in to be able to have the subjective experience of this being beautiful, which is to say to participate in the objectivity of it. Because otherwise the symbology and all that stuff wouldn't make sense to you. So if you think of it that way, not that there's some sort of atemporal universe, it feels to me like you're asking for a claim of universality.
2: No, I'm not at all. I'm not asking for a claim of universality at all. I'm just saying that aspect of the beautiful that requires a lot of work that he's referring to at the end seems to have require more explanation regarding the aspect of beauty that makes me want to attend to it.
0: See, I think some of this has to do with the accretion of tradition, right? So Danto's whole story that he's explicitly giving a response and a contrasting response to because he says Danto actually had contempt for the beautiful. It actually works counter to what art is about at this point. And the reason for that, the reason that sort of this classical picture of the advance into the 20th century of into modern art is because, and this is what they told me when I was in composition school, that if you just write like Mozart or something now, if you use that kind of tonality, then what are you even doing? Like, you're just, you're a cover band. Like, you're you're not doing something authentic. You're not doing something that is, and so he wants to acknowledge that. He wants to acknowledge that by the late 19th century, what was a grand tradition of classical music and genius had become kitsch, had become warmed over, sentimental. Just think of like strings under, you know, a movie soundtrack, you know, manipulative. And that modern artists like Schoenberg then were absolutely right that they had to create some sort of new vocabulary. But his version of the story. Is that first Screen wants to say tonality is objectively a wonderful discovery that appeals to all of us and like hits some at something deep in human nature. It's like symmetry. And so it is just objectively the case that the Western tradition that discovered tonality and harmony and used it this way that it is not is just better, even though he, he makes comments about Indian music and having its own thing, you know, these other systems, but there is something unique and wonderful about this and actually wants to deny, say, look, in the early 20th century, Sibelius was writing his best tonal stuff. And that is just as worthy. Like it doesn't have to be kitsch just because it'd been overdone. But those folks like Schoenberg who wrote, you know, famously this 12 tone, people think it's atonal, but it's actually very precisely tonal and mathematical and is exactly the kind of thing that takes like a lot of work and education to appreciate. Like Scruton says, there are actually wonderful melodies in this, but you're not going to sort of hear them at first. So that particular expression of beauty, right? It was a way to claim beauty back from mere kitsch, from mere retreading of bullshit. Like that does require education, but that's not sort of the prototypical case of beauty. Maybe it's just that in the journey of tonal music was a finite one, that it is not possible for another Beethoven to be alive now because... Beethoven has already been done. Like I'm just not sure what he would say that Danto admitted of an open-ended number of languages that contemporary artists, now that they don't have the burden of perpetual progress, that they can sort of reflect the geist of the time and do some sort of more idiosyncratic stuff that it's not a linear progression in the way that music was in the past. But in any case, you know, the fact that Scruton is so emphasizing throughout the everyday notion of beauty, and there needs to be sort of a continuum between just, this is a nice sound to be going in the background to keep on music, versus... Some like transcendent experience that you have to really, really focus on and really, really engage with that these are all just different levels. Like the more intense one, the more religiously transporting one is objectively better. There is more beauty packed into that. But by seeing the gradual slope into that complexity, we can see how it is at least based on something that is immediately attractive. Dylan, you seem particularly interested in architecture. Like, did you have thoughts? And, and you even read the beginning of his architecture book on how this all, because that seems like a perfectly, like, hopefully it's not, like, obscure. Like, I don't appreciate this building because I don't know the history of buildings. Is like, I don't know if there's a, anything like what, you know, was in the history of music.
2: His architecture book, the beginning of it is something we could have just read along with this. And in fact, a lot of it maybe is sort of imbued in this book because he's, the beginning of it is making a claim about a philosophical understanding of aesthetics to apply to architecture. The part about architecture that I find interesting is the fittingness business and the aspect of beauty that is corresponds to things fitting together well. And, the, and that attentiveness the thing that draws us to those things as being an aesthetic character of them and that that's part of what's going on in architecture and part of what's going on in things manifesting form and function at the same time a beautiful manifestation of the functional need and that relationship that's the part that that i find really interesting about architecture and i find my own experience is that for fine art, I have had the experience of just being sort of grabbed by something. I had this this past weekend. I went to uh, the George O'Keefe Museum here in Santa Fe, and there's a whole bunch of them that I'm like, "Oh, those are nice, right?" But there are a couple of abstract pieces that she has. One that just really just grabbed me is this, this sort of. It's a kind of landscape called the Beyond, but it's an abstract piece. But I had the same experience when I looked at Cezanne for the first time. I like, looked at it and I was like, I just couldn't stop looking. I just was completely grabbed by it. And then most of the other time, I don't have that experience with, when looking at art. I'm like, eh, okay, that's interesting. That's interesting, right? But with respect to art-like architecture, the aspect of fittingness, of coming together, of manifesting function, as well as how it joins in with affecting our psychological, as well as everyday activity of being, that I find very interesting.
0: Talking about this, I hadn't really thought of explicitly of the form and function thing relating to human beauty and the fact that in Britain, oh, she's, she's so fit. The fittingness, that's not what it means. But his insistence in here, a good chunk of what we read today is this whole thing about human beauty and how this is relates to nudes and pictures and how we need to retain the aesthetic distance, right? It's just kind of restating that Kantian thing that if you actually just want to have sex with the painting, then that is not that is irrelevant to its beauty. It might be that you do want to have sex with the person depicted in that, but I think the form versus function thing, like if you want to say that you can legitimately admire a knife because it is so well designed for cutting, or any other kind of tool like that, then likewise, you should be able to admire a human being and say, that is really beautiful, and I would totally do that, and that's sort of a a function of beauty in that way is to be attractive. He's completely against that, even though he seems to be okay with this not having a sharp distinction between form and function in architecture and other things. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminelifecom slash support. Thanks for listening.